uh, Luke chapter 20, if you don't mind, open your Bible there. Um, this last week, um, uh, it was awesome for me to get away with my wife, um, and uh, we got to go down and spend some time on the coast. We've been married 22 years, and, and that's half our lives for both of us. We've been married exactly half our lives. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's amazing. I was just thinking about Joel's class this morning, which was like super inspirational for me because it was just the right timing for the topic, I guess. But he was asking the question about um, what motivates you. And I was thinking the whole class, so, you know, a lot of people were saying really awesome people motivate me, and that's true. But really, it's, it's self-awareness that motivates me more than anything else. It's when, it's when I smell my own BO um, that I want to take a shower. Uh, it's, it's when I just become aware, uh, you know, of my own weaknesses. And, um, you know, one of the coolest things about being married, uh, is, is, is to, to, to have somebody in your life that probably knows you better than you know you, is more aware of your weaknesses, is more aware of who you are as a person. I, I think I've come to terms with the fact that I'm one of the least self-aware people that I know. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm really not in touch with uh, my own weaknesses enough. Uh, one time, my wife and I were on vacation, and I was young, and I, I was stupid, and I bought this super expensive pair of sunglasses. And uh, we went out to the beach, and my wife said, you're not going to wear those down on the beach. And I said, well, yeah, I am. And, uh, and she said, you're not going to get down by the water with those sunglasses on. I said, yeah, yeah, I am. I'm going to stand knee deep and I'm going to enjoy life. And I said, and I was just kind of frustrated that she was so concerned. Um, I think I can handle myself in knee deep water. She sat there on the beach and she read a book and I walked out in the water and, and God sent a wave and just smacked me in the face. And within seconds, my sunglasses were gone. I didn't turn around because I was humiliated that that just happened. And I was confident that I would find them. So I just stood there in the beach, in in the water, and I shuffled my feet for about an hour and a half. (laughs) I just stood there and acted like I was enjoying the sun. And I just kept walking. And after a while, I was like, the tide took them a long ways away from here. I will never see them again. And so I tried to figure out how I was going to word this. And I walked back to where she was on the beach. She was sitting there lost in a book. And I just laid there and I said, I lost the sunglasses. And she goes, I know. (laughs) She probably saw it happen. But she's more aware of some of those weaknesses. Uh, This last week we were leaving. uh, I had the funniest thing happen to me. I, I got in the car. We were about to leave the hotel. And uh, I said, you know, I'm going to do something respectful. We'd already checked out. But I said, man, I want to go thank them for their service. I said, can we just wait here? And she's like, okay. And I ran inside. I said, hey, ma'am, I just want to thank you for the week. It's been a great week. And we just really want to appreciate you for all you do. And she goes, well, thank you for saying that. It was a very congenial conversation. That's what I want you to know. And then um, she said, well, I'd like you to check out this website and look at some of this. Maybe next time you come. And I I said, "Um, yes, ma'am. And she said, yes, madam. And I was walking out and I was thinking, did she just, what did she? And I started to turn around and say, yes, madam. But I knew I couldn't say that with it, without a sarcastic look. And so I, I just walked out and I said, honey, this woman thinks something of herself. You know, and that's what I was thinking. I was not self-aware of the difference of our cultures that I just called this woman old. 
you know, in her culture, she's not from Texas, you know, in Texas, you call a little girl ma'am. I mean, that's just, you call everybody ma'am. Um, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. You're raised that way. And I just offended this person because I'm not aware. I'm not thinking like that. I'm thinking and judging everybody through my perspective and my lens. On the plane coming home, I thought about it. Got on a plane, the first plane we were on, I honestly got on that plane and said, you people stink. Now, I didn't say that out loud, but I was, I have a sensitive, and I was like, man, this plane is nasty. Y'all smell bad. But I didn't say that. I didn't even say it to my wife. I just sat down and said, be big about this. Next plane we were on, I sat down and smelled it again, and I was like, oh. (laughs) I just realized something. It was me the whole time. I was thinking all these people stink because I wasn't self-aware. And I sat on the plane thinking, I have got to get a shower. What motivates me to change is becoming aware of who I am. Something about being in God's holy presence reveals something to you about you. Now, you're about to witness a courtroom drama take place in Luke 20 where seven questions are asked. The Pharisees, the spies, the Sadducees are all going to think that they're bringing Jesus into their courtroom, but they have just brought the judge into his own courtroom. And they're going to start questioning the judge. They ask three questions. Christ responds with four. But what you're going to see about these questions is I always thought about this chapter is clever evasion. Jesus was so wise and how he handled and smooth. He was so smooth how he got out of this stuff. That's not what is happening at all. He is not, he's not skirting anything. He's not evading anything. He's exposing them. And you're going to see how in each question, he completely exposes their motives and who they are. One of the most amazing moments in the Old Testament by far is this verse where Job, throughout the book of Job, a long book, keeps saying one thing. All I know is that before I die, I will stand before him in the flesh and I will have my case heard out. I will... And Job is flawless, he's blameless in what he's doing, but he is wanting an explanation. And God finally responds with these amazing words. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? I've wanted to say this to so many people throughout my life and never got the courage. Brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you will answer me. Now what I want you to keep in mind, we go into Luke 20, this made me smile. This is the same God. I mean, we're talking about the darkness of the clouds, Job coming. And this this dialogue, by the way, ends three chapters later with Job saying, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth. That's how this dialogue ends. Job says, I'm done. I'm done talking. I'm going to sit here and listen to you now. You are the holy, righteous God judge. You are amazing. You know, this is the scene. Here's what I want you to keep in mind. Don't lose this. This is the same God in the flesh that is being brought to trial in Luke 20. This is the same God that easily could have responded to each of these questions by saying, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? In Luke 19, Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. The king... 
He enters into His temple and He uses language this bold. This is my Father's house. And you've turned it into a den of robbers. He takes authority. He has presence. He stands with these people and He says, this is my house. These are my people. These are my sheep. And there is there's an absolute um, command that you're seeing in these chapters. And so now He's going to stand before the religious leaders And it's going to be him on trial at first, but then it's going to be reversed. Now, I want to share with you what I believe is, um, some of you know, my favorite author is is, is C.S. Lewis. And I know that's trite. I know a lot of people love C.S. Lewis, but I am in love with the book God in the Dock. Um, God in the Dock actually was not written by C.S. Lewis. It wasn't compiled by C.S. Lewis. He didn't come up with the title, nothing. Um, Walter Hooper is the guy that put together God in the Dock. And actually, some of the most amazing lines in the book come from Walter Hooper. But it's a compilation of a lot of um, essays and, and radio talks, thing, things that he had put together, are put together in this book called God in the Dock. But this is the greatest quote that I think is so relevant to our time period. This is what C.S. Lewis said. Ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge, if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease. He's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench. And God is in the dock. I think this is one of the most accurate depictions of how society has changed since ancient times. God is on trial. And even though you're going to look through some of the questions that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the spies put forward, really we have a lot of the same questions in our own hearts and our own minds that we put forward that are very similar to these. And maybe think about it. What is something that I would really ask God? And our questions reveal something about us. And that's what you're going to see in this chapter. Um, We're going to begin with, I'm just going to begin reading in verse 1, Luke 20. This is what the text says. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, he had just walked into the temple. These are the chief priests, not of Jerusalem, of the entire lands. He's standing before the Sanhedrin. He's standing before the the high priest. He's standing before the Pharisees, those that had dedicated themselves to the law. They robed themselves in, in, in prestige and honor. And now this carpenter comes in from Galilee. And they ask him this question, Who gave you this authority that you can come in here and flip tables over and talk the way you're talking? And Jesus responds with this question. John's baptism. Was it from God or from man? Now, there is so much depth to this response. John came teaching repentance. You guys, as a nation, need to come to Christ, and the Christ is coming. And as long as that's theoretical, everyone's on board with it. As long as it's theoretical that the Christ is coming, that's great. 
But then John ended his ministry by saying, he must increase, I must decrease, John 3.30. He, he is the one that needs to be exalted. I need to become nothing, and I have been pointing to Jesus. I've been pointing to Christ the whole time. And now, Jesus asked the question, John's baptism, which John said pointed to me. Is it from God or is it from men? And I, I, this is a question that's so relevant, and I don't want to get too off track here, but I think we'll find out later I don't think it is off track. This is the exact question I've had to ask people about baptism in general. With all of the junk that we have brought in and the hijacked and, 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 and everything, all these weird doctrines that we've brought into churches, we have few things that are genuinely from God. Baptism is one of those things. And it's one of those things that people question in the same way that Jesus was questioned. Well, what happens if somebody's on their way to be baptized and a meteor strikes planet Earth right before they go underwater and their nose didn't make it under? Are they? Go- we ask the same dumb questions. And the one question is, man, is it from God or is it from men? With everything that we have that we stand behind that's from men. I mean, man, if they had attacked gun laws, man, everybody would be like, no, oh, let's be real. But you attack baptism, and they're like, I don't know, probably go to heaven anyway, I don't care. I'm not saying, I'm, not, I'm just saying this is something that they're saying from God. And they're terrified to answer. They're terrified to be honest about what they're really standing behind. And so they say, oh, we don't know. Because they're terrified of the people. And what Jesus just exposed in these people is that they don't genuinely serve God at all. They're not asking a question to be genuine at all. They they are not being honest about their own doctrine, their own beliefs. And so that's the first thing that he does with uh, with their questioning. He goes on and he says this um, in verse 9. He told a parable. So a man planted a vineyard, rented it out to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a, a servant to his tenants to, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. Now he's talking about the prophets here. He still sent a third, and they, they wounded him, threw him out. So the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him, but when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He'll come and kill those tenants and give the the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May it never be. Now they knew he was quoting uh, from Isaiah 5. He's, 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 he's singing the song of the vineyard. Um, th- this is a, a, something that they knew, that, that this the idea of the, Jerusalem and Israel being the vineyard and that God planted it and he set up a wall around it and he sent the servants into it and hired it out to tenants. They knew the story. And so that's why they responded, that will never happen. This will never be. And so Jesus responds with another question. He says, well, then what's the meaning of this phrase in this, in, in Psalm 118? The stone, um, the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What's the meaning of that? And what he's pointing out is 
the builders rejected the stone. Now, and I'm not going to camp on this too long, but in the coming weeks you'll see it. In each section of the book of Luke, um, he provides a lens for us to, to look at Jesus through. The first one is Samuel. That if you look at Jesus' birth and early childhood, he paints it through the lens of Samuel. And we walk through that. Later, you're going to see him through the lens of Elijah and David. And now you're going to look through the lens of Psalm 118. That's going to happen in the coming chapters. Psalm 118 is going to be quoted over and over again in these chapters. And the crucifixion, it's going to be Psalm 22. And so you look at each of these sections of the book through the lens that the author's providing. I want you to see this as kind of what he's doing. So he goes on and he says this. Um, the, the, now some spies are sent to him. Uh, verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak what's right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Huh. So is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Um, this question is extremely profound. And the reason why is because I'm not sure who these spies are. They could have been randomly chosen people, but I do want to talk to you about the audience that he's surrounded by. He is right now surrounded by, you would know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. We've heard of a group called the Zealots. And this is a group that wanted, uh, uh, kind of politically, the independence of Jerusalem, the independence of the Jews. There's another group maybe you haven't heard of called the Sicarii. The Sicarii were a group of the Zealots that were terrorists. Um, it's important to know about this group because they actually play a major role in the coming chapters and in what would happen um, in the demise of Jerusalem. The Sicarii were named for the daggers that they carried. Uh, Sicarii means dagger. And Josephus and other historians record that they dressed like women um, and or they, they cloaked themselves and they carried daggers around everywhere they went and they mixed in with the crowds. They were assassins. They would kill People who supported Rome, they would they would assassinate people and disappear back into the crowd. So they're called the Sicarii because this growing group, and they had one message: we will stop paying taxes to Caesar. We are no longer going to contribute towards a tax that's going to go towards Rome, that's going to build the temple, the temples in Rome. We're not going to do that anymore. And so this terrorist group sprung up. Well, that's the danger here is Jesus says the wrong thing in this setting. He says, no, we won't pay taxes to Caesar. Then the, gov- the Rome is coming after him. If he says we will pay taxes to Caesar, the Sicarii are going to probably stab him on the spot. That's the end. The Roman-Jewish war was started because of the Sicarii. They went ahead and killed off the Roman soldiers. They stopped paying tax to Caesar, and the, Rome- and the war with Rome began. So this question... Jesus says, let's stop paying taxes to Caesar. All the people follow Jesus. They're probably going to stop. He raises civil war right here if he says that. But instead, he exposes everyone's hearts. And he says something amazing. And he pulls out, he says, man, show me uh, one of these drachma. Um, I'm sorry, that's not a drachma, it's a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Now, that guy's got a beak, and I, I'm not saying that to make fun of the guy, but I'm, it's too obvious. Um, this is Tiberius. And, and, and if, you, if you would you look at this coin, he just says this. Whose image is on it? Whose inscription is on it? Well, 
Well, that's Caesar. That's his inscription that he's basically God in the flesh uh, when he calls somebody Augustus. That, 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 that he's, he's God. This is his. And he goes, then give to him what belongs to him. And give to God what belongs to God. Now, he insinuated something amazing here. Because he is, by implication, he's saying what? Whose image were you made in? Whose inscription is on you? Then stop giving your money to God and your hearts to Caesar. Man, give, give Caesar your money. It's money. But give your heart, render your heart to God. He exposed something wrong in the people that they have this religion that is so, everyone's so worked up about money. Judas was worked up about money. The scribes and the Pharisees are worked up about money. And God says, I want one thing from you. Your money represents that. Paul gets into that. But one thing I want from you, give your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength to me. You were created in my image. You were created in my likeness. You were created to be like me. So now I want to start developing a theme together because even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, all of their questions are somewhat random, Jesus' responses are not random. They're all very pointed and they point to one central thing. The first one is this. He said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now cornerstone, the words that's used, it doesn't mean super important stone. It is, but it's, it's more about its function than its prominence. The cornerstone was used... How many of y'all have laid tile before? few of you have laid tile. What's the most important piece of tile you're going to lay? I'm up here talking like I know something. Melinda's up here is like, you've never laid tile in your life. Um, but what's the most important piece of tile you would lay? The very first piece. It's going to set your angles. It's going to set everything right. You're going to get... You're going to get your vertical angle. You're going to get your horizontal angles. Everything is going to be based on this one stone that has to be placed right. That's what a cornerstone is. And so when you built a monumental building, if you built, whether it's a pyramid or you're talking about the temple, that first stone that is going to set all of your angles and all your dimensions is everything. Jesus says, that is me. You need to tear this down and begin with this right here and rebuild Now he gets to the coin and he says, whose image were you created in? Whose image were you created for? Allow that potter his rightful place in your life. Final final question. Um, Marriage and the resurrection. Now this one's funny. And I want you to bear this in mind. This is the Sadducees. So the Sadducees, obviously these are people that do not believe in a resurrection. So... Let's just begin with this. They're asking questions about the resurrection, whose wife this guy is going to be. You need to bear in mind they do not believe in a resurrection. So this is what the text says. So some of the the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question, teacher. They said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. This reminds me of one of those math problems you had when you were a kid that you forgot. (laughs) I I mean, I would be halfway in the paragraph and go, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her, Jesus replied, 
the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They can no longer die, for they're like the angels. Now, what's hilarious about this response is he could have left it as saying, man, you guys, are, you guys don't know what you're talking about. We're not, you're not going to be married in heaven. He could have just left it there. But he, he concludes by saying, they're like the angels. Something else you need to know about the Sadducees, they don't believe in angels. So Jesus is deliberately like saying, uh, yeah, they're like the angels. He, it's another poke at these guys. He's, he's, he's revealing their hearts. He's revealing what's really going on inside of them. So some of the teachers of the law, keep in mind, this is a different group. These are the Pharisees. So some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. They liked this part because Jesus was on their side. He's on their page. Uh, and no one dared to ask him any, any more questions. And so finally, we'll just close with these verses. Verse 41. So Jesus said to him, how is it that they say that Christ is the son of David. David himself in the book of Psalms says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So while all the people are listening to this, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Um, Reading through this account, reading through this, this scene where they have brought the judge into their courtroom and all of a sudden it becomes his courtroom, their hearts become completely exposed They were not self-aware. Now, listen to me here. They were not aware of how sick they had come to smell. They can't smell themselves anymore. You've been a part of a religion where civil war, murdering one another, elevating really, really strange laws, and disregarding prominent laws, this had become the norm. And when you're surrounded by it, isn't it true? When you're surrounded by that, it becomes okay. I don't know if this has happened to you, but I, I've spent my life around religion. It's, it's what I've known. Listen, I have become a very sick person I've become a very sick version of myself by surrounding myself with the wrong types of religious people. And you're sitting there and you're singing the songs and you're serving in all these other things, but you see the things that we say on Facebook. Talking to the older crew. You see the things that we're, we're throwing around on social media and the kinds of things that we get angsty about. The kinds of things we attack each other and each other's thoughts about, and they are not from God. They're from man. And I could touch on some of those issues, and we would be in the exact scene that we would be at in Jerusalem. Well, if I say this, that side's going to kill me. If I say this, that side's going to kill me. So one question matters. Is it from God or is it from man? 
And we need to start exalting those things in our lives that are clearly from God. And what God's going to do is he's going to reveal our hearts in that. Because someone told me one time, and it's been my experience, the best people I have ever known in my life I met in God's kingdom. And the very worst people I have ever met in my life, honestly, I met in God's kingdom. Well, I met in churches. I've seen sick things happen in the name of God and in the name of religion. Sick things. In fact, how many times a week do I have to answer the question, isn't religion the cause of all of the worst, horrible disasters that have ever happened on this planet? I have to face that question constantly. My response is, isn't passion the reason for all of that? Politics is the reason for a lot of nastiness in the world, right? Should we get rid of politics? Everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> but but it, it's, it's because it comes down to passion. It comes down to those things. And our problem is not passion. Our problem is misplaced passion. Passionate about things that are cultural and from man. And not being cognizant of those things that are from God. Um, I want to close with this image, just in your mind. Isaiah stands before the throne of God. Isaiah 6, right? Stands before the throne of God and says, Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen your glory, the Holy One. Job is brought to a very similar picture. Now the scribes and the Pharisees stand before the King of the kings and the Lord of lords. And they've got their questions and they've got their trial. And now their hearts have been completely exposed. For every single one of us, I wonder what that is. To become, to pray, just to become aware of ourselves. And is the language that I'm using reflective of God? Are, my, are the things that I'm passionate about really reflecting God? And I pray that, um, you know, kind of in response to Joel's class this morning, I had so much I wanted to say because it was just got me on fire. I was thinking about it. What is the one thing that will motivate you right now? And I'm talking to individuals in this room that I know and I have prayed for you and I've said they know the right thing to do. They know the right way to go, but they need motivation. They need something just to jumpstart their spirit to do it again. If there's one thing that would motivate you, I pray that somehow with the sin that's in our lives, it would start to smell bad enough. We would start to hate it enough that we would not allow that to be a part of our lives anymore, that we'll move forward. Um, I want to lift up God's church in prayer this morning, and I don't mean Meadowlark. I've really been hurting for God's kingdom. Um, I've got friends in different parts of the nation like most of you do. Um, And I have seen so much sickness in the things that we are passionate about and that we're willing to divide over. The language that we use when speaking of people 
that are from different nations or of different ethnicities. The language that we use in talking about other religions and other people that don't go to the same buildings that we go to. I I, I pray that we would smell that and recognize that that is not the smell of God. And that the aroma of Christ would rest on us. Um, my father, I just I want to come before you, and I, I didn't say enough. I, I, I pray that your word would speak more. Um, but I, I, I want to pray for your kingdom today. Uh, God, I, I, I praise you for this nation. I praise you for so much. Um, I guess I'm, I'm going to use the word freedom and a lot of other things you've provided. But I pray, God, that we would not be American Christians. I pray that we would be Christians. I pray, Father, that we would be aware of our culture, that we would be aware of things that are in our culture that are not from you. And, God, that we would be wholly yours. Uh, God, I, I ask that we would not, we would remove ourselves and switch positions that that. We would stop putting you on the dock and setting ourselves up as the judge. I pray, God, that we would continually live our lives like Isaiah did before your throne, that we would recognize when the king walks into his temple and the judge walks into his courtroom, that we would put ourselves where we belong and that we would allow you to be the judge that weighs our hearts and weighs our actions. Um. I pray that you would cleanse your church today, purify your church today. And um, if we offend people, I just pray that it will because it's because of you that we're offending people, and not because of our callous hearts. Um, I love you so much for the wisdom of Christ and the power of Christ, and that he reigns as our king this morning. It's in his name we come before you. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God.